How can you be part of a religious community that straight up denies Sometimes science it feels or like the church is trying to hold The church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the Why are they so obsessed with keep trying to give answers, but they don't even know the questions we're asking. The church is the most vocal political voice against immigrants. Some churches still don't want to claim that worship was the actual how can your story be good that is from the majority of people on the church seems to be stuck in their ways when the rest of the like, culture how is that actually it seems like so much of the church exclusive anti-critical they are being homophobic too narrow judgmental disconnected from what is truly happening in the real world <sighs> the church needs therapy welcome to the newest episode of the church needs therapy and today we have as our special guest, the Reverend Sarah Heath. And Sarah is an ordained United Methodist clergywoman. And if that isn't unusual enough, she's also an actress, an author, a dancer, a designer, a podcaster, a self-proclaimed nerd, and a dog mom as well. Originally from True. Canada which when I saw that you're originally from Canada and went to college in Mississippi, I'm like, where does that dream begin? Oh, oh, just wait. Where, where, <laughs> it's a story. Where, do, uh -huh. where does that dream begin? Originally from Canada, <laughs> Sarah attended the University of Southern Mississippi where she received her BS in psychology with a minor in biology. But eventually hearing the call to ministry, Sarah then attended Duke Divinity School where she earned her Master of Divinity and her MDiv in 2005. And just recently, Sarah stepped down as the lead pastor of a very unique Methodist church in Southern California, Costa Mesa to be specific, which is where my wife and I live for five years as well. And now she co-hosts two podcasts, one, Making Spaces, the second one, Your Favorite Ants with Kevin Garcia. She's the author of two books, What's Your Story and the Authenticity Challenge. She's a featured pastor on BuzzFeed, a spokesperson for World Vision Canada, and she restores furniture like nobody's business and now more large-scale projects on an Airstreamer. Um, I could keep going on, but for now, Sarah, thank you so much for taking <laughs> the time to be with me personally today and also with the listening community as well. Oh, I'm so glad. I am so glad to do this with you. And before I ask the first question, what state are you? Are you in North Carolina right now? No, I'm currently in Alabama. So oh, my Alabama. brother gotcha. uh, lives in Alabama and I am visiting my brother and his kids. So unfortunately, I'm out and about because my brother's kids got quarantined. So they're at home. So in order to record, they're going to have kids running around. It's like, okay, I'm going to go. There's this cool little spot going forward. Turns out they have background music and like You're out there's quiet. a lot of people brunching You're behind out. us. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not, it's not. I'm trying my best though. Yeah, no, I, wherever it happened, I'm, I'm, I'm happy that we were able to make this happen. Good. And Me yeah, too. let's, uh, you know, I think it's helpful when people hear, you know, the words of people to know where the words are coming out of, you know, the story people have, the mm -hmm. trajectory they're on that makes sense of sure. what's happening within the words now. So if you could introduce yourself a bit more personally, like if we zoomed out a little bit. Yeah. What are yeah? What are some of the bigger picture movements in your life, specifically when it comes to your relationship with faith, your relationship with the church, that help make sense of where you are today? Which is another way of saying, how does somebody who grows up in Canada dream? Their one dream is to go to college in Mississippi. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that dream before. I mean, that's where Brett 
That's where Brett, that's Brett Favre. And so, just kidding. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, I actually moved with my whole family. Mm. Yeah, I, so when I was growing up, my mom is British and my dad is Canadian and we grew up, uh, my parents are both uh, from the city. And so my parents like grew, like lived in Toronto. They, my dad's a doctor, my mom's a nurse, but they've always had this like real heart for uh, folks within uh, like smaller underserved communities. And so Mm. we always ended up um, in like tiny rural areas. So we were in, I was born in Newfoundland uh, as one does. And then we moved to Northern Ontario, tiny town. It's like a really gorgeous place. In fact, National Geographic just listed it as the seventh most beautiful place or something. Um, It's gorgeous. And I grew up there, but my dad, my mom and dad both, we were getting recruited. My dad is a fantastic and so we kept getting recruited because not only is my dad, you want to talk about like overachiever. My father is general practitioner, anesthesiologist, and an obstetrician. Mm. So he has all three accreditations, which is really great when you're working in a rural area. And that's something that can mm. only really happen in Canada. So Canada trains their physicians a little bit differently. So we were being recruited all the time. And for whatever reason, we like checked out the South. And I laugh now because I was like, as a kid, I acted. And so I was like, I got to go to America so I can be discovered like Mm. Mississippi. So I remember being like, we're moving to Mississippi. (laughs) The only thing I knew about like American culture was uh, 90210 and uh, Saved by the Bell. What's funny about this is like later on in life, I've actually been really lucky to get to know uh which by the way those are <laughs> both be- those those are both shows that i grew up on as well and i feel like saved by the bell is when you're young and you get a little bit more yes. edgy when you're older now yes. and oh so the people who yep. listen in who are like younger than 25 you're gonna have to google check it out <laughs> check it out so i laugh because uh the way that my crazy life works, I actually know Tiffany uh, Thiessen, who mm. played Kelly Kapowski on Saved by the Bell. And I remember one time I was sitting with Tiff and I was like, Tiff, I need you to know that I wanted, like, I didn't know what an American was, but like, like when I got to my high school, I started dating a football player, like it all just, I was just trying really hard to be like so Girl, American. I tried to, I tried is, to get a football player and a cool guy to like fight over me. And then I got to choose. Right, guy, Zach Morris, <laughs> whatever. You know, I just didn't know anything about American culture, but I just, so I was all about moving. And I think that has a lot to do a little bit, not a little bit, a lot to do with how my face structure is. So I grew up in a place that's very open, welcoming. Uh, I grew up in a place where all of us were in the church choir, but not all of us went to church, you know? And so I grew up in a tiny, tiny town where the entire town was part of the yearly Christmas pageant. Believers, non-believers, Buddhists, whatever. Everyone did the Christmas pageant because that was the place that we gathered. And it was my home church that did that. Mm. My pastor was a female. Mm. So moving to Mississippi and I really wanted to take faith seriously guys like when i say i wanted to be a good christian like i didn't know exactly what that was but i was pretty sure i wanted to do it and so like joined fca because i was an athlete like i just tried so hard and i went to a summer camp in canada every summer until i was 21 and that's where i really discovered that i had this ability to speak and had an ability to lead and so um i think acting for me always felt like it was going to be too much about me and you know within christian tradition we grow up to like no, anything that has to do with who we are is like, you got to try to couch it into something mm. helpful for the kingdom. Right. So I, right. Mm-hmm, I was in college. Yeah, my my personal going- desires can be dangerous right. or evil. So actually I'm going yeah. to live those out, but I have to communicate them in some other way that makes it look like I'm doing this specifically for God. 
<laughs> Kevin, does it not feel like every pastor was a theater kid at some point or a musician or no, like every every everyone every mm-hmm. lead pastor was like a rock star on the way and was like damn yes. it i met jesus <laughs> and now i got now i have to do it <laughs> and now i gotta preach lead worship and do all these yes. plays on stage look at me but look to him yeah that was kind <laughs> of my uh, experience also like growing up as a as a woman within the church environment, like I always thought I was an Enneagram too, like always thought I was uh, learning about the Enneagram. If, if your listeners or you are like aware of the Enneagram, Enneagram twos are the servers. And that is me. That's a big part of me. But uh, my friend, her name is Jen Hatmaker. Many of you might know her, wrote a book. And um, I, Jen and I were scheduled to chat on a phone and I called her and I was like so mad because I met with this Enneagram expert and the Enneagram expert had the audacity to say, may I just suggest that perhaps you might actually be an Enneagram three? And I was like, mm-hmm. no, I'm not. So I'm like on the phone with Jen and I'm like, Jen, you're not going to, so sorry. Like I might seem a little off today. I was like, this Enneagram expert who I paid real money to suggested that I was an Enneagram three. And Jen starts laughing hysterically at me and goes, <laughs> Uh, oh, honey, you walk in the room and there's big free energy. She goes, when you walked in the room, I was like, there we are. There's one of me. Nice. <laughs> and like the first time she met me, she was like, no, you were the same person, Sarah, mm. which is true. Right. But I had learned to like suppress and not mm. be honest about the things that I wanted or desired. So in college, I, I got a biology degree. I got a psychology degree. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And when you're multi-talented and multi-interested, it's really hard to like click into what you're supposed to do. But I'd been studying. I'm going to cut you off for a sec. So when you were in college, was it like I do, I go to like, Vic, I don't know like what they are, like a victory ministry on campus, or I'm a part of this church. Like, were you doing, like, were you involved in those types of like spaces? I was. So from high school, uh, my high school boyfriend and I were very involved in FCA because we're Fellowship of Christian Athletes because mm-hmm. I was a soccer player and he was a football player. And then in college, I got very involved in the Wesley Foundation, which is Methodist and also the Baptist mm-hmm. Student Union because, you know, you just want to have all your bases covered. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was also a sorority girl. And so I was doing all of that. But I found and I was on leadership team of both the Baptist Student Union funny story. And I got called in for dancing, which was real good. And then I also was part of my Methodist fellowship, which I loved, hmm. but I, um, I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And I was on a retreat with this youth group. I realized I was spending all of my time with this youth group that I was volunteering with. I wasn't being paid. Hmm. I became their intern and eventually was paid, but I was spending all of my time just hanging out with these kids. I had had some issues with eating and some of these kids were um, recovering from anorexia. Uh, I was hanging out with kids that were musicians, which is my big heart. Like I love music, but there's also athletes and having been so athletic, I felt like that was the one place I could use all of my giftings. And it was on one of those retreats that a kid said to me, Sarah, do you think you're supposed to be a pastor? And I was like, "Mm, that seems like maybe. And so I actually (laughs) told my college pastor and she was amazing at the Wesley foundation, but I didn't know anything about it. Like I was just like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I know like two pastors and they all went to Duke and at the time Duke divinity was the hardest school to get into. Mm. And I only told my parents this later, but I only applied to Duke because my Mm. deal with God was like, if I don't get in that, I don't have to do it Mm. because 
I was so afraid of entering into that world. And so I got in, but then I told myself, well, if I get in, um, my parents deal with us was first degrees on them, second degrees on us. So it's like, okay, if I get in, um, how am I going to pay for this? This is a lot. Uh, Duke is not cheap. And I got in and then they gave me a a 75% scholarship. So I feel like God kind of strong armed me into this and him Mm. and I will talk about that or actually they and I, I that that we'll have God and I will have a conversation about like, really, I had to go into it, but it has been uh, going to Duke was such a huge part of my formation. I studied under some of the greats. Um, I'm a huge nerd when it comes to like, uh, once I'm into something, like I'm going to want to know all the things. And so like, I knew nothing going into seminary. I always tell people like me in seminary the first week was like clueless. Like I walked in, like everybody else was talking about like Greek and Hebrew. And I'm like, I studied biology, like, and, and I also, and also, girl. and also for people listening in, add clueless to, if you're the younger people to your Google right. list. <laughs> We're so no, old. No, I, 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 th- I think about that when I preach too, like, cause you're, you're, you know, you have your natural cultural references you like grab and like the right. one the movie like uh. i was just uh another pastor at our church larry and i were just leading a group like you know like mark scandrett over the years he does like in san francisco yes. something called the G- the jesus dojo so we yes. do a version of that at imagine and so you know the, the kids who were in it were mo- they're mostly like the one we just did was like you know, 21 to 20, I don't know, six-ish, probably the oldest is 28. So it's younger kids. And I remember telling them about the scene from Goodwill Hunting, you know, the famous, like, it's not your fault scene, which is like one of it's my like, favorite scenes oh, it's ever. Like, I'll and no, and none of them, none of them had seen the movie. Not one <laughs> oh, of them, no. not one of them had, I was like, this movie's not, like, it's not old, but I'm like, but if you were but born in 19... 19- in 2000 or 1999, this was five, six years before you were born. This would be like, like me. Walk, I, 2,000 can drink now. 2,000 can drink now. So, yeah, that's the second Google for the younger people. Google for the day. For the younger people. Yeah, Google. But, that, but there's. You know, that's a, a question about Duke. Um, you know, now, like if someone were to follow along and hear the things you're saying, hear how you lead, hear how you see the world, you know, which I encourage everybody to do on the podcast, your favorite aunts and making spaces. And if you pay attention to Sarah's work, you know, you clearly have this more progressive and inclusive. And from my perspective, you know, hopeful and future oriented vision of the, the Jesus path. So was Duke, it sounds like because of where you grow up, you know, where things are more open and are more just naturally kind of inviting as opposed to like people growing up in these really bounded kind of small, oftentimes yeah. evangelical spaces. Like, was there bigger theological like paradigm shifts and like, whoa, like moments a lot of people might have in grad school or when they start reading other stuff before yeah. and, or, and, or like what were some of those defining like voices, moments, experiences that are like shaping you sure. into this broader vision at that time? I think the thing that my story holds is that like I started off in a very open um, environment right. and then I chose for myself a very closed environment. Mm. I chose for myself 
the more evangelical movements. Um, I belonged or participated in a church that was outside of my denomination when I was in my early 20s. You and I both know it. We can talk about it off. Uh, mm. It actually launched a lot of our friends. Um, mm. And I never felt completely able to be myself within those spaces, but I felt mm. like those were the spaces I was supposed to be a part of, right? Like this like narrative of that. And so I feel like my perspective was broad growing up. And then when I moved to Mississippi in order to fit in, in order to be quote unquote acceptable and received within this space, I learned how to like make my voice smaller and make myself mm. almost smaller and make, mm. you know, what I believe smaller. Like mm. my parents joke around about like, I went <laughs> My rebellion was I became a little more conservative. Like right. I became more conservative than my parents. That was my rebellion. <laughs> um, and I think as I have sort of started to open up that space a little bit more for myself as I've gotten older and realized that I am so grateful and so glad for the community uh, that I had at Duke because people were on various spectrums. And we were reading. I mean, I got to study under Stanley Howard Ross. Who yeah, was Duke's like, am- yeah, Duke's amazing. Mm-hmm. I studied under like pretty controversial theologians and it kind of took my, what I would call like good Christian Bible study faith that I had. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I thought I was going to get to go play my guitar. We were all going to talk about Jesus and then I was going to go and be able to do that. Well, it like deconstructed that in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but it prepared me for what would happen later, which mm-hmm. is where I think in some ways where I started was actually where I ended. Like I am mm-hmm. much more, uh, open in my theology. I'm much more open in my um, belief about like, what is the kingdom of God? Where is the kingdom of God mm. here right now within me? And just learning to read scripture in such a diverse way in seminary was so helpful. And it was alarming, right? You're 22 mm. and you're in there like, what is this? Um, I, I joke that your first year of seminary is where you learn that you shouldn't preach. Your second mm-hmm. year is where you feel like a heretic. And your third year is you're like, ah, hell, I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> and I think that really happened for me. Everything I said when I was in my second year, I was like, I can't send this paper in. Like, I'm a heretic. Mm. Uh, but I learned like being a heretic is kind of a fun place to be and a fun space to be. And I think... You know, I, you know, Costa Mesa, the place where both of us are sort of, I would say like one of our formational places. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, uh, I think a lot of my friends have been shocked, but it is one of the most conservative places I've ever lived. You, you already and- like, I love, I love when guests on here jump ahead to like questions I have. And later on, I have questions about you your role, your community, and being in Orange County, specifically Costa Mesa, Newport, which from the outside, it's like, it's on the ocean, man. It's cool, you know? But you're like, you don't realize. It's like art. (laughs) Well, uh, it's cool also. It's like, you're on the water. I'm like, yeah, but when you stand up on the harbor, it's nothing but Trump 2024 flags on the thing doing it. So go ahead. So it's... So yeah, you were going to so say Costa Mesa. Space, yeah, yeah. Talk about that. I want to hear that. Yeah. I mean, I remember, so I came out of, you know, top tier echelon. Uh, Duke, amazing, master. open, like the most um, like awesome Theology, conversations. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. I come, I got recruited to come out to uh, UCI, which is near California, Irvine, as a college pastor as well as a youth pastor. But I started preaching as well. And that was like a super good fit. Uh, and a weird discovery for me. I never thought I would be a preacher, which is super weird when I think about like, uh, when I was in seminary, I took my hermeneutics class, which is your preaching class last. Cause I was like, I don't want to take this class and ended up 
one of my pre- uh, preaching professors, Dr. Turner, who's phenomenal, a black man, incredible, came up to me and he said, woman, you preach like a black man. And he's like, why didn't you start preaching before? And I was like, nah, it's not for me. Turns out it's for me. And it's actually my complete jam, which is mm. part of my story as well. I think like hearing other people help me kind of get to where who I am has been a big part of it. And I feel mm. like the divine speaks through so many people in my life. Mm. So I ended up being recruited to come do that. And I thought, oh, I'll go to California. Very similar to Canada. They're going to get my progressive notions. They're going to get... Oh, no, no. Uh, and then I got really involved in this church community because I was 24 and I needed other 24-year-olds. And as you know, in Costa Mesa, there is one church where everyone is 24 or around there. Uh, and so I started going there and, and got really involved. And um, By the way, it's, it's so weird how we've never, we've never talked before, period. But we've never talked about this. I think I waved. But I know but I know what church you're talking about. And I'm pretty sure it's the same one my wife and I were a part of for however many years. Oh, we were for there sure. Too. I'm pretty sure. I think I saw you preach one time when I was on a break and I went to our mutual friends church. I'm pretty sure you were in from Hawaii and you guys spoke. This would have been years ago. That's but, very possible. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, but I, so I had this, experience of going to this area that I thought would be really open but I remember going to parties and I would be sitting with all the other people there and people would be like drunk out of their minds and then someone would say what do you do and I'd be like oh I'm a pastor and they'd be like this one guy lectured me about how couldn't be pastors he was like well you're a youth director I was like no I'm a youth pastor like I'm ordained he was like uh no you can't be because of all these verses and I will never forget like putting my drink down looking at him and being like I wrote a thesis on this. You want to talk about Paul? Let's talk about Paul. Do you read the original language? Because I read the original language. Let's go. <laughs> like all this mm. sort of stuff where you're just like, how did I end up here? But your heart feels like, I don't want to be there, but everyone else is there. Mm. And so I feel like I silenced, I was part of something called a life group in this community. And I silenced so much about myself to mm. try really hard to fit in. And I realized that it's never the path to happiness. Mm. We're never meant, you know, Brene Brown says, uh, there's a difference between fitting in and belonging. And St. Bernay is mm. right. And I think for mm. so long, I was trying desperately to fit in when what really my heart was looking for was belonging. And mm. it wasn't until I had the opportunity to come back to Costa Mesa and plant church. Mm. Uh, and I mean, restart and plant within a community that had already existed for a hundred years wow. that I got an opportunity to really feel like what belonging looks like and how we can create that space for other people. So that's a little bit of my, like, I've tried really hard to be an evangelical. Like I'm allowed, I belong to a media group called the Reverend Media Group. Our podcasts are hosted uh, through them. And it's like the ex-evangelical podcast, the Dirty Rotten Church Kids, all these people who are like pushing the boundaries. And I think they let me in even minor dipper toe in and she liked to win in it. It was like, oh, purity culture. I loved that shit. Like I was trying mm. so hard to just be one of them, right? But I never was going to be because of what wasn't who I felt like connected me to the divine. But I really like tried so hard, mm. so hard. Yeah, that's... Yeah, those, I know I thought about that when I got to know like more and more of your story and, and, you know, and hear more of your journey where I'm like, man, Costa Mesa, you know, in Newport Beach area, just in Orange mm-hmm. County, like it, it's such a unique place culturally and such a challenging space to mm-hmm. try to be the person who's etching out some of those new grooves for the future. Yeah. There's so much resistance there. I mean, like, 
I like there in, in that area, like the conversations about like women in ministry are still a thing. Like it's still it's an actual conversation of like a legitimate, like with well, very well respected leaders broadly there are like, that's still a, a conversation they're having about that. I'm like, I, I know that I just, I, when my wife and I were there, I, I knew, cause I was like in grad school and my wife was in grad school and we were there, we just got married and pretty quickly I was like, this is temporary. I was like, it's cool for what it is. <laughs> I knew I was like, and that, that enabled me to like be present and to enjoy it the way I did because I knew it was temporary. So I'm like, hey, I'm here for like five-ish years. My wife and I surf. We're going to be around Newport. Okay, cool. But I was just like, Great. I knew personally, I was like, with who I was and where I was and where I was going, I was like, I can't spend my energy fighting the old I can't, and that's the thing, I think, a I, lesson of the last couple of years, right? It's like, if we shoot our energy just towards uh, defending <clears throat> ourselves, <throat> towards fighting the old, there's no opportunity for creativeness, right? So creativity mm. really sprouts out of um, kind of being hopeful for the future and believing like we can create something different and better for others. And I think for so long, the people of Costa Mesa, they like had this great so those of you who aren't history, church history nerds like Kevin and I are. Like um, 0.01% of people are who would know these things. Right, right. Uh, there is this really interesting movement that happened within um, Christianity. There was a, a movement, uh, kind of like the vineyard and all that sort of stuff came out of this Jesus People USA, like uh, very Jesus-centered stuff. And it happened in Costa Mesa. And so um, I didn't realize moving there, I kind of forgot church history. Sorry, uh, Dr. Chapman. But I kind of forgot some of the church history that it really took place right in this environment. And so it makes sense that people were like, oh, no, no, no. Like the spirit moved. It was in the 70s and the 80s, but the spirit moved. And the interesting thing is, there's a great podcast that's going to come out soon. Um, some of that stuff happened with a person who was actually gay mm. and never was an um, incredible human, uh, mm. but lived this sort of dualistic life and started the vineyard. Um, I'm thinking of like... Uh, Is Calvary the reason Chapel. why Calvary... Yeah. yeah. So guys, Calvary Chapel, you know, there's this like uh, podcast that's come out about Marisol. There's one about to come out about... Uh, Calvary Chapel that's going to talk wow. about how the guy who was one of the most influential speakers there actually was a gay man. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that it's going to be an interesting conversation for those of us who have experienced just the closed off um, experience of what I think Orange County can be. And I think, yeah, it's just a, it's a place that I love, but I, it's also a place that I understand is pretty problematic, especially as a woman who, you know, um, it checks all the boxes of what would be like the person who should fit in, right? Like I'm white, I'm cisgender, I'm heterosexual. Uh, and yet because of my intellectual nature, because of my questioning nature, I was seen as suspect. Mm, yeah. um, and I actually was kicked out of my life group. That's a fun story. Um, as a, as an ordained woman, I was kicked out of my life group and I'm like, so, not so you, you can, you can handle, boundaries. you can handle leading a church, but you just couldn't cut it for a small group for a bigger church. 
Right. Because I wasn't committed enough because by the way, I had to go to my own church meeting some like once a month on the same night that we had life group. And they're like, we would like you to actually consider opening the spot up for someone else. Cause we don't feel like you're committed enough to it. I was like committed enough to it. I literally work. You know, you're all in college. In I was on the board. I was on the board of like eight ministries. <laughs> I was on the board. And once I like, Oh, and that was too really interesting. And I think about like young Sarah. So I started college at 17. So I was really young and I, I was so naive. I thought everyone would be excited for me to enter into ministry. Once I made that decision, Mm. I didn't realize, I think because my culture doesn't have some of the same gendered issues that when I stepped in Mm. to ministry, uh, my Baptist student union leaders were like, they, instead of like having a conversation with me about like, Hey, this makes us feel uncomfortable. And, um, they just distanced themselves from me. Mm. And so I was a great leader as long as I was willing to be married to another great leader. And I had dated all the good, right? Christian boys. Cause I had like a thing for worship leaders for a while, which I really realized is I just had a thing for V-necks. Um, you know, like I just, uh, I went well, especially, that especially like, if again, you were around Orange County in, in like the mid to late 2000s, then that's, that was peak deep V yeah, era. Didn't we, didn't we love a V and we, and we loved a, a, a useless scarf. We went through like a phase <laughs> where men, everyone looked this up. Men wore scarves and very, like a lot of the guys I was dating were wearing my jeans. Like it was just mm. a phase. And yet no, sometimes we that. still yeah. see it. Yeah, there was, there uh-huh. was time. And I think there was just a, go ahead. When, when, uh, when I was, when I was in Costa Mesa, I was, I was going to Fuller at the time. And when I was at Fuller, I I didn't do an MDiv. I did like two MAs, like so the intercultural studies and theology. It kind of just I basically didn't want to do languages. I didn't want to do systematic theology and languages. I I could just basically yeah, systematic my theology is crap. Sorry. No, I was I was like I'm good, but because I had so much overlap, I could almost create my own schedule. And the professor who I connected with at the time, his name was Ralph Watkins. He was the head of the black theology department there. And he became like my one, like really close friend and mentor there. And so when I was there, my focus was on black and womanist theology. So, you know, I'm like 24, 25, uh, 26. Stop. Um, and I rem- like, and this is like, now I, I kind of laugh at it because obviously last year, this post George Floyd uprising, I'm like, whoa, it seems like the word of the year for white people is like systemic racism, you know? And I was, and I'm like, and I have mixed feelings about that. So I'm like, one, I'm happy that's even in the cultural lexicon. Cause that's a helpful thing, obviously for people to Welcome be aware to the of party. Welcome to the party. But I'm like, but I'm like, man, right. when I was in Costa Mesa 10 years ago, talking about, you know, no. systems of mass incarceration, the prison industrial complex and black liberation theology. I'm like people, I would be in, I remember being in a meeting and you know, that's like, it's like at, you know, the church I was at and afterwards it's like these theology bros who are there with their mentor, you know, like that kind of vibe. And they're like, so Kev, like, what are you studying? They're the in grad same school? guys that were hitting on me in my early twenties and then telling me why I couldn't be a pastor. They're the same guys, by the way. Keep going. It, it, it was like <laughs> I was in a room where like we end some meeting, and then one of them's like, "Well, what are you studying?" And I'm like, "Here's these like three theology bros, the the pastor and like and his wife right there," and I'm just like, "Oh, like black theology and you know like like how institutionalized white supremacy you know is in theological structures," and I was like those moments of like now we're in an hour conversation where like the leader of the theology bros is like fighting me while his friends just 
stare at me. And now I'm in this like awkward and like, and I knew at that point, I'm like, where I'm at is going to be met with so much resistance. And that's, I think one of the helpful things for my wife and I starting imagine the way we did where, you know, when, when we use this language, I'm sure you're familiar of like transcending and including, I'm like the thing, Richard Roar. And even like Roar's, you know, center, like his tagline is like the best criticism of the bad is the practice of the better. So when we started oh. Imagine, when we started Imagine, I was like, we're not here to fight the old. The interesting yeah. thing is spending our creative energy. And it's the harder thing. Like I can fight the old with my mind. I can fight the old in a disembodied way. I can fight the old with my computer. I can fight the old by drinking beers. apologetics. Yeah, I can just, I can... But pastoring and leading and creating and building, that requires my heart. That requires my body. That requires an entire embodied incarnational way of being that just talking shit about the old doesn't. And that has been like when, when my friends who are pastors and you know, like, and everybody has obviously hard things they go through. But for me, I'm like, I don't do Monday morning emails after my sermon. I don't, I'm not. That isn't my life of having to deal with those things. Now, granted, those people who would fight me wouldn't be at Imagine, and that's totally okay with me. But um, I, I just knew, I'm like, we have the freedom to create this. And yes, like, if you ask me, I have my thoughts, and I'm going to share with you what I think. But like, that oppositional energy. But just, are, we, it, are we in relationship? Like, I am fine with someone coming at me. People love to, like, debate. Mm. And... My question is always like, am I in enough of a relationship with you that you and I can have this conversation and it can be something that is helpful healing and like we both can kind Mm. of come with our beliefs. You know, there's been so many studies done. There was a a recent one out of Harvard that we never um, will never be able to move people uh, towards our belief. If we're just sort of sitting in and yelling, it's if we can hold Mm. our own and have conversations where I'm not trying to change you and you're not trying to change me. So we're just holding our own beliefs. They have found that psychologically we move closer to each Mm, other. And I think we haven't been taught, let alone in the church, I would say in cultures, particularly in Western culture, how do you disagree without othering? So what Mm. I mean by that is like, you know, you talk about this, like, um, realizing like the study, everything you're doing, like involves your entire body involves your like personhood in a lot of ways. We've been taught like when we're having a debate to think of the other person that we're having this debate with as wholly other, like Mm -hmm. that is an entire, right? Like I can say certain like political parties and people will have actual feelings about the personhood of Mm. someone in that political party. We're talking both sides. And so I think, and by the way, how problematic is it if we think Mm. within a roar structure that we have such bipartisanship, like, right? Mm. Talk about dualistic. Mm. We live in a dualistic culture. And so we, you know, we preach and thinking that we're like including people, but until we're in like actual relationship with you, I can't risk in the way that like helpful conversation and uh, debate happens, right? We've got to be in these like, actual relationships. And Mm. so even though I've left working in church ministry, I think one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about local church stuff, and I'm like, I got to tell you, I'm no longer, you know, for so long, I thought I wanted to like, well, I want to be part of a mega church. I don't. I want to be part of a community that is so involved in each other's lives that we can have these tough 
conversations that are transformational. And I only think transformation happens in relationship mm. in real yeah. relationship, not, not the phony, like we do life together. I, I need there to be risk. And I've got so many examples of relationships that I've got in my life right now that are risky. They're hard. Mm. I, I say terrible things. They say terrible things and we try to like meet each other, but it only mm. can happen when I'm able to risk. And that can only You're all, happen. I in, say terrible you know, things. They say terrible things. So we start a podcast together. You know, that's what. So your favorite <laughs> aunt is absolute trash. Every time someone recommends it, I'm like, we're garbage people. So our joke was we were just at a conference together, uh, a festival and Kevin um, is the non-binary queer incredible LGBTQI advocate, coach, witchy, witchy woman in so many ways. And Kevin and I have been friends for before Kevin came out, actually. Uh, actually, Kevin had just come out when we became mm-hmm. friends. Uh, and we host this podcast called Your Favorite Dance because we are your favorite dance of the internet. Because so many people were asking us theology questions. So Kevin also has all the degrees in uh, theology, but is also just like the funniest person on the internet. Mm-hmm. So we started a podcast just because we like hanging out with each other. It's like our excuse to do happy hour every week together. And mm-hmm. people ask us all these random questions and we answer them. So we're walking onto this festival site and there's this like sign that says trash. And I was like, do you think this is where we're doing our podcast? He's like, yeah, we are garbage people. They had us on the main, they let us, they gave us time on the main stage. They gave us idiots time on the main stage where we just kind of like shot the shit, laughed about things. But you get into these really deep conversations. And again, I think it's because people see our relationship Mm. and how we've had to negotiate, again, a heterosexual person of privilege in Mm. many, many ways. Um, negotiate a relationship with someone who is Hispanic, who is non-binary, who has had to fight for everything mm. they have. Mm. Uh, and yeah. yes, I have as a woman's ovaries and often is in any theological, like theology bros are kind of my favorite because I'm sneaky as hell with them. They don't mm. expect me to have the head that I have on my shoulder. And so it's a great conversation to be like, mm. oh, that's fascinating. You're quoting this person. What do you think about the writing of like Dr. Will Gaffney and what a womanist perspective on this? And they're like, I don't know who that is. And I'm like, I don't know who John Piper is. So let's try to <laughs> I literally didn't know who John, when I moved to Costa Mesa, people were like, so you have a theology degree from an Ivy League school. Have you read like Piper? And I was like, I don't, I need you to know that like academia is not talking about Piper friends. Mm, <laughs> like I need you yeah. to know that. And I was like, oh no, mm, I don't know who that mm. is. And then I looked him up and I was like, I'm glad I don't know who that is. <laughs> Um, Even though they've like tweeted at me, Piper and Piper's little homies. <laughs> you know, you like for the first time you said in 16 years, stepping away from congregational life. And like we spoke about before we started recording, recording, not stepping away from the substance and heart of pastoring, right? The yeah. guidance, the the shaping, the teaching, the speaking, all those things like that. That's why I tell people like pastoring at its best, it's not a position, you know, when some people treat pastoring like a job, it strikes me as very odd where it's like, now that I've given you this job of a pastor, you do these things. I'm like, no, because you do these things, it's just right for someone to call you a pastor because that is a proper way of holding together how you are with people. That's how I always think about things. Like I don't do what I'm doing because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor because of the way my, me and my wife and I both live our lives and want to be with people. Um, and what I love about people who have that pastoral sense about them just in an organic way and, and for you, like your work is driven by the assumption that people can change, that life can truly be different. 
Because if you didn't really believe that in the depths of your being, you wouldn't take the time to do that. We would be doing something else. You would be doing something else. So for you, like in the midst of there's challenges, I come to Orange County, yes, there's resistance, there's all types of things you have to deal with to allow your voice to be what it is, right? Depending on the environment. But for you, when we think about that actual core pastoral energy, when you look around right now with everything you've been through with your time leading people, yeah, you think about college kids getting ready for their vocational journeys, parents of young families, creatives making a way in this kind of rapidly changing world. What is it for you? Like, what is the core energy within you where you look at people, you're like, ooh, like, this is what... I want for you. This is what I hope for you. And also, and the amazing part about being a pastor is, and, and I'm also, that's a part of my commitment is to be a part of you becoming all of that. It's like, what is that thing for you when you look at people who I want this for you, for everybody? I, it's, it's so funny. Cause I, even as you're speaking, um, people can't see me, but like my whole body starts to like react to your words of like, yes. She yes, started yes, throwing, she started, thing. she started like air, bo- like shadow boxing and throwing punches at the screen. I just, I get so <laughs> excited. Uh, for me, I am so passionate for people to know that everything they're looking for, they already have. Um, and this notion of you're already loved by God. And so how do you, you're already loved by the divine. The thing that we work so hard for, the thing that we, um, do terrible things for the thing that we just never feel good enough for you already have, what does life look like? If the notion that you're living from within is that you are inherently divine and beloved, what, how does that change every day? If, if the striving is over, if this idea that, you know, the church, last church I worked at, which is an incredible community, the coolest thing is like leave a community and still be so proud of who they are. Love the new pastor who came in. It's a great organization, great place. Mm-hmm. And when it, we have this big sign on our wall that says you are already loved by God. Mm-hmm. That's it. Like, so what does it look like to live within the notion that um, maybe who you are is inherently good. And I know a lot of people are going to say, well, that's not what the Bible says. Actually it is. So there's different versions of how we got to this like original sin stuff, guys, that is much later within Christianity and within history of Christianity, that this original sin, and let me tell you, original sin says sells real well. Cause it's this idea of like, I, you're broken. Here's the thing. I got the thing that can fix you versus you might be struggling, but like, I got news for you. You've got all that you need within you to heal and to be able to be present to yourself, to others and to God. And so I think for me, the like energy is just this idea of helping people see the beauty that's already within them. It's the same thing with restoration of spaces for me. Mm. And I had really good friends who pointed this out to me. I'm always trying to return things to their best. Maybe like taking, like, you know, we talk about deconstruction, demolition, whatever you want to call it. I always like this idea of reformation, this idea that we can take the pieces of us that were good. Um, the reasons why we joined these organizations, the reason Sarah at 24, I'm not angry that she got involved in this because what she was looking for is good and holy. And how can we take those pieces and kind of reuse them to form what will bring us into our next thing? So again, it's that idea if of trans send and include, you know, um, and, and again, when you said transcend and include my entire body was like, yes. Right. Like I just, <laughs> because I spent time, uh, with, uh, father roar. I was so lucky to like, there's 25 of us. He invited us. I didn't even know what it was about. I was just like, yep, I'm in, uh, sign me up. And one of the things that he sat with me and it, like 
shared with me is this idea of like, you can both wholly believe that you are moving forward and accept and love the good pieces of the past. Bring it with you. Um, and the bad things, like it's kind of like when I'm doing restoration and I'm like, oh, some of this stuff is really shitty and let's not like use this horrible knob from the 70s. But the wood is gorgeous. And I think that's the same with our theology. It's the same with how we've done community in the past. Like we can transcend and include those things. And, and it is 100% bringing us closer to ourselves and closer to the divine. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's the thing I that keeps me going. That's the thing. And you said, you know, Sarah, you have this hopeful belief that people can change. One of the biggest gifts, you know, a lot of people are burnt out for ministry and they have this like toxicity. They're like, everyone just took advantage of me. And, and yeah, I've got some of that. You know, we talked earlier about how my therapist was like, can we just talk about the fact that I'm pretty sure you actually have PTSD? Um, because cumulatively over a long amount of time, when you're expected to be or, um, uh, have certain answers or whatnot, you can get to this place of like, Oh, I got PTSD. Right. Mm. Uh, but I have found one of the greatest gifts I've been given is I've been able to track with people throughout their lives. And I've seen change that is nothing more than miraculous. I've mm-hmm. seen people who would never have accepted their gay kid walk them down. I have seen people who simply didn't believe in ministry when who I am and what I do. And if I didn't see those things, I think I would have like a different perspective, but I've seen people change that no one thought could change. Mm -hmm. And so that has for me been the gift of like, of course I can maintain hope. I've seen it. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so good. I just was talking to my last guest about this, but I remember at the end of of Daniel Berrigan's life, you know, the Berrigan brothers, they're like the radical priests of the Mm sixties, you know, like, yes, they're the ones like, you know, breaking into the Pentagon buildings, like burning draft papers as a way of, you know, like protesting the Vietnam War. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. And at the end of Daniel Berrigan's life, like, you know, this is a guy who had given his life to peace, you know, gave his whole, like the people in the sixties, because of what was happening culturally, like the peace activists and because of everything going on. I mean, they thought like we are transforming things in a way where we can move towards a world or at least a country without violence. And then 40 years goes by and America is still like in a constant culture of war. And, you know, they have to be forced to reflect on like, what did we do? Like, did we all have to do that? We all look back. You're like, right. what did we do? What was that? You know, and how do I put that together and learn to see my life as an offering as opposed to, you know, just being attached to or weighed down by the outcomes, depending on how we judge them. But someone asked him, like, how do you stay hopeful? And I love his answer where he, he wasn't like, there's a new book I read about, you know, new creation, you know, there's a new (laughs) thing I learned. He's like, I essentially, he's like, I stay hopeful because I do hopeful things. Uh, Like small, hopeful, like that to me, like that's the resurrection energy and that's the hopeful energy is like, Uh, that that's the gift of being a pastor in the midst of like, we can all be over, like you can scroll through Instagram and look at things happening politically, culturally get frustrated with the church and it can be overwhelming. But when you stay grounded in local spaces where you're like, I'm seeing resurrection happen. I'm seeing around the table, like that mm-hmm. one person's tears and what they meant. Cause I know their story completely changes how I feel about the universe as a whole. But if I wasn't like, I'm an Enneagram five. So fives are uh, like, 
are very much <laughs> are very much in our heads. And my default patterns, if I wasn't engaged like with my entire being, I could easily become the most cynical. All I do is read and critique things and become cynical. But it's me staying grounded in hopeful spaces, which gives me hope. I'm like, it doesn't mean I'm not seeing what's happening. There are all kinds of reasons right. practically to feel frustrated. And I get all that. But when you're around love and hope and change, you're like, that does something to me that changes how I actually move and my sense of being in the place as a whole. So that is one of those, those gifts of the hope of being in those spaces. I think too, as I think about, so last year, as I was getting ready to preach a resurrection sermon, you know, my last Easter sermon, by then I knew it was going to be the last one in my community that I just adored so much. That's crazy. Um, I know it was the weirdest feeling. Right. And it was like, also like we were going to be together for the first time um, since the pandemic had started. And I was thinking about this idea of Christ's resurrection. And I was thinking about one of the things that has always struck me and I haven't known how to name or claim or talk about even was like, when Jesus could come back, Jesus came back with the holes. Jesus came back with a body that was still carrying the pain of the past and mm. still carrying the truth that all of that had happened. All the resurrection mm. didn't wipe away everything that happened. And a dear friend of mine who is, um, who is blind actually said, I love that Jesus wasn't healed because it reminds mm. me that there's nothing wrong my blindness isn't something to be healed. It's something to be included. And that's the Mm. conversation too. Like all of these things, I want listeners to hear that. Like, if you've got something you're like, yeah, but the church really hurt me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that can also be moved with you. You don't have to reject that and like say none of that trauma happened. None. No. And I think for so long we have um, gaslighted people's experiences mm. of, of pain and hurt because we haven't known what to do with it or how to include it into our future. Like part of my story is so painful, yet I bring it with me. And, and the resurrection hope isn't that all of that goes away, but that all of that can matter at the same time as a hopeful future. And I mm. think we have just spent so long telling people that the resurrection means we can overcome anything um, mm. instead of we can um, bring that thing that happened into this hopeful future. I Mm. love that you could be a huge advocate for peace and never see full peace and still believe that the kingdom is here and Mm. now and good. And I think Mm. it's the only way that we hold on to hope. It's the only way that theology has any legs or matters um, is if it can be a both and both. We believe in a future that is better. And we recognize that right now in the midst of this, this stuff is still real and is still happening. And I can't just use my mind. I can't just use my body. Absolutely. I have to experience all of it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so good. That degree and depth of integration is, is the journey. You know, it really is. And it really so, is. And it sucks, but it there, is. There, there's a, so often like when I'm preaching, cause our community out here for whatever the reasons are like, it's more often than not younger people who are, you know, in the church and like my wife and I now are 36 and, but even in our early thirties, whenever we were doing it, we're like, we're usually some of the older people here, you know? And sometimes when I preach, there's things I'm saying where to people in their mid twenties, where I just think to myself, this doesn't, this doesn't matter to you now, but in 10 years it will, because what I'm telling you right now is 
after life punches you in the face. At, you know, after like, right I, so, so often I feel like your twenties is I am who I think I'm supposed to be or want to be in your thirties is starting to come to terms with like, ah, oh, but this is who I really am. It's like the person who's like, no, I'm not, I'm not anxious. I would never be, you know, I would never, and then they go to therapy or their friends like you are, have generalized anxiety all the time. And you're like, no, I don't. Cause good people don't have anxiety. So they haven't, they're mm. coming to terms with that, you know? And so I think so often there's these conceptually simple forms of wisdom that seem so simple, but to live them, embody them and integrate them are the hardest thing. And some of what you're saying makes me think of, as you do go through some of those struggles, as you go through some of the harder things into your thirties, into your forties, I'm like, one of the most, when you talk about integration, you know, lining those things up, bringing in the past, you know, including it without rejecting it, you know, allowing it to be a part of it. I'm like, one of the most spiritual, revolutionary, transformative things we can do, which sounds so simple, is just learning to feel our own feelings. Oh, yes. Now you're you, preaching. Like, like and with, not, they're not suspect. They're not wrong. They may, like, not judging that feeling, um, even if it's not where you want to land, mm -hmm. to go, to be, I call it the emotionally curious like you, you, huh. you, you, yeah sure. yeah even and i've seen yeah. that too what's happening there's a i just i got like a um uh what's it called like a publishing like deal for my first book like last like recently actually you know so it's called yes. that's a plug for people for people listening in who already know the making of a mystic eating mushrooms finding god and following jesus 2022 you already know what's i coming. cannot wait <laughs> how have we not been hanging out anyway keep going but one of the chapters in the book is called feeling shitty and a part of what i'm saying is like sometimes on a monday morning as a pastor and just as a person you just feel shitty and yeah. And a part of what I do in that chapter is to show there's things we do to avoid just feeling shitty because we think that if we feel that it actually says something negative about who we are, when in reality, they're just feelings we have that are a wave that are just going to come through us. Like I just got my wife or we, we, my wife just got a new surfboard and my friend shaped it and he wrote on the string or like on the little wooden part, it's just a wave. And it's about surfing, but it's about life. You know, it's like when we get overwhelmed or something happens, like this is just a wave that's going to flow through our bodies and pass by. And mm -hmm. our emotions are like that. And I, in that chapter, I, I talk about how like when I was, you know, probably 29 or 30, I had one of those Monday mornings where I wake up, like I feel shitty. I'm like, I'm planning a church. What is happening? I don't even know. What am I, what I'm am I I'm not allowed thinking? to feel shitty. <laughs> and as I started to just sit with it, I could feel my ego start to like contract a little and start to be like, well, then we could do this or we could do that thing or we could do this. And I'm like, how many church programs, how many mission right. campaigns, how many big projects actually were born out of a leader's inability to just feel their heart uh, yep. as a uh, way uh, of uh, like, uh -huh. they're trying to achieve their way out of that feeling, but instead they just uh. actually need to feel it and sink through it into the grace that's beneath it. And I don't know with that integration stuff. It's like so much of it is that simple thing of not avoiding, distracting, numbing, hiding, justifying, explaining, and just sitting with whatever it is for the moment. And it dissipates, you know, it eventually it will flow through you if you hold that space long enough 
and entrusted to the spirit. But it's just one of those things where I'm like, it's so simple. And yet, you know, as we get older, you're like, man, how much do people do that's just an unconscious way of avoiding just feeling hard things of where we're at in life and what we're thinking about where we're at or whatever it is. I think the most surprising thing for me is when I, I had decided to leave full-time ministry and I knew that my community was a space and place where a lot of people that went there had, we were their last resort. Like we were the yeah, last awesome. time they were going to try church. And so I knew that they really valued me. We grew quite quickly. We're a very diverse community in a non-diverse area. Mm, and awesome. so I had this, like all these feelings about leaving, right? Like I can't leave I'll be leaving these people, but I just knew uh, for me and for who I needed my, and for what I needed my future to be, I knew I needed to take a plunge. I needed to leave. Mm. And so I sat with my leadership team of 12 people, which by the way, was like the size of the church when I got there. So it was mm. crazy to have 12 people in my living room. And I shared with them that I was going to leave wow. and everybody got quiet. And there's an incredible lesbian couple who have been married 34 years. Tell me about this, like emotionally healthy humans. They are both social workers. So they're just always, wow. they're incredible. So they got really quiet and I was like, oh no, they're mad. Right. That's my first, they're mad. Mm. They're hurt. And all of a sudden, um, the more shy woman speaks up and says, Sarah, we're not quiet because we're angry. We're quiet because we are afraid of how that will affect us. But in, even in this moment, you are teaching us how to be human. Wow. You are teaching us the value of knowing when it's time to step away and the value of saying, this isn't just my community. It's yours as well. She said, in a weird way, you are leading us um, once again. Mm. Uh, you are um, showing You're us like, Right? <laughs> so I stepped away from my church and three days later got 15 thank you cards from people. Wow. No one else knew that I was leaving yet. This was just the, the leadership team. And I got all these cards from people that were just like, Hey, thank you for the way that you did this in a way that made us feel seen. And, um, it's, was one of those moments where I realized my ego told me that when I stepped away, people would be devastated mm. and they would never trust the church again. Right. Cause I felt like I had done so much work over five years to make these people trust again. Mm. And then I'm going to like kick them to the curb. Like what? But they didn't feel kicked to the curb. And I think that's the, if I had just sat in the fear, um, mm. if I hadn't sat in it, I'd avoided it. Right. So mm. avoiding it would have looked like not resigning, avoiding it, avoiding it would have looked like, like resigning, but giving like all these other reasons, not just saying, Hey guys, I'm really burnt out and you guys mm. deserve someone who's not, mm. we started this thing together. And, um, who I was when we started is not who I am right now. I have given my absolute best to this. And I also recognize that what you guys need in the future is not what I have. I don't mm. have the ability to mm. do this next step. Um, and they, they were like, your integrity in that, it wasn't that, you know, and so often I think pastors have been asked to be superhuman. And so they do really shitty things like have weird affairs or do the thing because they want out. They want out. Mm. Their, their body, their entire system wants out. So they do the thing that means they cannot stay. Instead wow. of saying, I'm going to like live into this thing. And you remember mm. how every week I tell you to trust that, like God is with you, I'm going to do the thing mm. and then trust that God will be with me. And every day I wake up scared shitless. My whole body goes, mm. what the fuck did you just do? What are you doing? Um, mm. Every morning you had a job, you had healthcare, you had retirement and you mm. walked away from it because something in you said, this is not where the spirit has me mm. um, right now. And 
And the other thing is we were recognized. I mean, we became a affirming community in Orange County. Uh, the mayor, I, you know, I spoke at a lot of citywide things, you know, when the Black Lives Matter stuff came out, like I was being asked my opinion and I'm like, first of all, I'm not a person of color. So let's actually talk to people who this mm. is affecting in a different way. Um, and, you know, I think there's, you know, I feel like I'm like the easy to swallow progressive because mm. you know, she's like a cute little sorority girl. We'll ask her. Um, and I think when we're honest about being human and honest about like, like the shit you said, like feeling shitty. Mm. Yeah. I think it's so <laughs> helpful, particularly, and, and I'm speaking from not my lived experience, but I think toxic masculinity has told guys like you, uh, the surfing, good looking tall guy that like, oh no, 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 you're supposed to be like feeling it all the time. Like you're supposed to be okay with wh how you are. And then when they don't, when people don't feel completely in control of where they are, completely in control of their emotions, mm -hmm. there's so much shame that then the acting out stuff, because I can't fully feel my feelings. I don't even know what these feelings are. I've not been taught how to pause, how to meditate, how to, how to sit myself in this thing and go, this doesn't mean that I should start a war. You know, we were joking around, but I don't think it's wrong. I think if toxic masculinity was addressed and if um, purity culture was addressed, I think wars would end, honestly. Mm. Honestly. Um, I think there's so much to be said about teaching people how to feel and not avoid. Um, mm. And I hate it. I don't like it. All the time mm. I'm trying not to feel things. I'll always tell my friend, I'll be like, I'm anxious. And he says, anxious isn't a feeling, Sarah. What is the feeling that anxious is covering? And I'm like, mm. screw you. Um, but so often <laughs> I think we just don't know how to sit with the uncomfortable. And I will admit to in the early part of my church ministry, thinking my job was to make people not feel their feelings, mm. right? Because it made me uncomfortable. So I would wow. sit by bedsides and I, I would deal with death. And, and I learned very quickly that that was never my job. My job was mm. just to say, yes, this hurts. And, mm. and God is present in it. Yes, this is the worst. This is the thing you didn't want. And the divine is present. Mm. This, you, you, I'm, I don't know. I was a pastor in Orange County when the 2008 housing crisis happened. Wow. I talk about men who didn't know what to do when their jobs were like, it was painful. And all these people had put their identity into work. And so you're all of a sudden saying to them, what if that's not the best thing about you? Mm -hmm. And now you're having to relearn what the best thing about you is. I think there's just such an opportunity to say life is more than this thing that capitalism wants you to think life is so much more than this thing that evangelical church wants you to think. And guess what? I don't have three steps for you in a program that you can buy for $274 to tell you how to do it. Instead, mm -hmm. we're going to sit here with the thing you already have, which is a deep, knowing, you know, Richard Bohr calls that that deep knowing, which is the spirit, the deep knowing, and we're just going to sit in it. And I'm mm -hmm. sorry that that doesn't feel like an answer, but it actually is. Mm -hmm. So with, with, uh, with every, with, with every eye closed and every head bowed, that's, that was, again, like I was, you know, like, okay, what is the last thing I'm going to ask? But I think everything you just said was just the, the best thing. And, and, uh, and again, like it's an expression of when you see, like, I, I, I feel like for me, a person who's still in congregational life, you know, my wife and I leading my wife also. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I, what I love is affirming and recognizing the journey of my friends who are leaving congregational life, but still leading, pastoring, more alive than ever, more free than ever, yeah. more ready for the next thing than ever. When other people who might not understand that journey would see it, would not understand it fully. For me, it always, it just makes so much sense when people do that at the right time. And the way you told that story just shows me you know, for that, that it is. And I have other friends, you know, who we talked about who are in similar spaces, but with everything you just said, it makes you think the, the peace the mystic has in public comes out of the tears they've shed in private. Oh, that's the, the yes. full, the full feeling of things when no one's looking. Freaking and- read Teresa, mother Teresa's journal. <laughs> hmm. Oh, Talk about an emo song waiting to happen. I mean, Mother mm-hmm. Teresa was just like in this deep sense of despair all the time, never thinking she was enough. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mother frickin' Teresa had tears mm-hmm. in private mm-hmm. and he's an incredible mystic and revolutionary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, you anticipated the questions. I, you know, this one was, I feel like, a little more personal than some, which I think is great because so often I think the person's story is the message. You know, the person's trajectory, the person's movement. So I'm so grateful for not just sharing, you know, when we talk about, you know, this is, this is church and theology, but it's also, this is, we're talking about all of that as it flows through my life in a concrete way, which I just love for people to get a glimpse of that. So Thank you so much for taking the time of outside course. in Alabama, right? That's the first person I think I ever Here interviewed I who was in Alabama. And for those Here of you I following like along, less people. Making Spaces podcast, your yeah. favorite aunts with Kevin, who she was talking about earlier. If you follow along, Rev, R-E-V, Sarah Heath on Instagram. Also, your personal website is also RevSarahHeath.com. Yeah, we're just redoing it. That's part of my afternoon. So, so podcast. So podcasts, I'm sure I would assume probably some more writing in the future, new things Mm -hmm. ahead as Sarah steps away from her congregational life and allows her voice to flow into all of these unexpected and new spaces. So for people listening in, tap in with her, follow along in those spaces. And yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This was a gift. I'm so grateful that we did this. I am so glad. It got me fired up, as you can tell, because I just was so excited to talk to you about this stuff. Yeah, thanks so much. And we'll definitely stay in touch. Yes, please. Okay.